This morning we want to continue our series through the book of Romans, having taken a short two-week break to consider the triumphal entry, the death and resurrection of Christ for our Easter meditation. We want to continue in the book of Romans. Our scripture passage this morning is from Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. We want to read that under the heading of true religion is of the heart. True religion is of the heart from Romans 2. And since it's been a few weeks, I'm, I intend to read the whole of the chapter. We'll begin our reading in Romans 2, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter this morning. Let's give our attention to the Word of God. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you... The judge practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And I believe verse 4 is one of the most important verses for understanding the rest of the passage. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the, that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not, do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day... When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And now our scripture meditation for this morning. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the Word of the Lord. May we receive it this morning with a believing heart. My most dear friends, the Christian religion is ultimately a heart religion. All throughout the Bible, we learn that while man looks on the outward appearance, it is God who looks at the heart. This, of course, does not refer to the physical organ that pumps blood throughout our body, but the heart in the Bible refers to the person as he exists in his core. And we think about the heart in the same way, don't we? In our culture, it's common to speak of a broken heart, a heavy heart, or a heart filled with love. And we're not speaking about the physical organ, We're speaking about our person. Who we are in the depths of our being. And the Bible is the same way. One Bible dictionary says our heart in the Bible refers to our personality and intellect, our memory, our emotions, our desires, and our will. And so when people talk about God, We say that God cares about a lot of things. Those who, there are some maybe in the social justice side of things who would say God cares only for the poor. That's what the Bible's about, only the poor. There's some spiritual Christians who would say God only cares about the spiritual. There would be maybe the cynics who would say God only cares about the money. But let it be known today that what the Bible says God really cares about is your heart. See, while all of the world is looking at the Ukraine and the war, while all of the world is looking at the problems that we face, God is looking at your heart this morning. The Bible is full of this. In Joel 2, when God tells His people to repent, He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. We just sang that the sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God does not despise. See, what I'm getting at this morning is that true religion is not about the posture of your body. True religion is not about what church you go to. 
True religion is not about saying the right words and doing the right things. True religion is all about the heart. As my friend and preacher, Reverend Harry Zeckfeld, puts it, are you a Christian on the inside? And doesn't the Apostle Paul make this exact point at the end of Romans 2, verse 29? He says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. We noticed three weeks ago, the last time we were in book, the book of Romans, that Paul is endeavoring, remember, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, to show us our sins. He shows us that the Gentile sins deserve the wrath of God. And then in chapter 2, he tells us that the Jewish sins deter, uh, deserve the wrath of God. All people are accountable to God. But here in this chapter the end of chap- this chapter, Paul is going to tell you, urge you, not to put your faith in religion. Don't put your faith in the external signs. But it's a heart that trusts in Jesus. A heart that trusts in Jesus is only and always the basis of our right standing before God. That's our theme this morning. Right standing before God doesn't come from our religion. And what I mean by that, of course, is our external posture. Right standing before God comes from a heart touched by the Gospel. I want to just show you this in two points. Very simple points. Hypocrisy rejected. Sincerity required. Hypocrisy rejected and sincerity required. In order to really understand Romans 2, we have to put ourselves in the sandals of the Jewish people who would have been listening to Paul's letter being read so many thousands of years ago. Think about it this way. If the Jew and Gentile are both going to stand before God, the Jew and Gentile are both going to be examined according to God's perfect standard, the law, and the Jews are not going to be graded on a curve, what's the point of the covenant? What was the point of the law? What was the point of circumcision and going through all those ritual sacrifices? And maybe some of you here this morning might ask the same question. We were baptized. We were included in God's covenant. We were given the promises. And you and I, Paul says, will still stand before God. Maybe you're asking this question. What's the point of all this? Notice with me in verses 17-20 through 20, that this is one big, long, run-on sentence. No periods. Where Paul says, look at all the blessings that the Jews received. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve of what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. One sentence. And we're used to Paul speaking negatively here in this section but he's actually speaking positively here. 
that the Jews received in the covenant many blessings. I want us all to notice something in this passage. But especially our covenant children. If you're under, some of you are young at heart, but you know, if you're in your 20s, you haven't professed faith, or maybe you have, I want you to notice something here. You see, sometimes we can be jealous of our friends who aren't raised in the covenant. We have to go to church on, twice on Sunday. But everybody else gets to go to the ball game. Their parents don't force them to do the catechism lesson. Mine do. Other parents might let their children watch whatever they want. They might let them do whatever they want. But Paul says in Romans 2, to be raised in the covenant is actually one of the greatest blessings. Look at what he says. He says that you are a Jew. You, are been, you have been the chosen people of God. God chose you and put you there for a reason. That's a blessing. He says you rely on the law. Knowing the Ten Commandments. That's a blessing. Having a moral conscience. Boasting in God. Remember, not all boasting is sinful. That's a blessing to know the Lord and to know His will. While all the other nations don't know the will of God and how to live their lives, they do. The covenant blessings, says Paul, are innumerable. And it's true for us as well. As Christians today, we are blessed to be in the covenant. You know, once when I was back in the Reformed Church, we had a gentleman who joined the church. He was a former Pentecostal. He liked to shout amen during the service. So that's where I get it from. And he was not raised in the church. And he had this you know, incredible testimony of struggling with drinking and drugs. And he would tell people about his past. And the, I remember there were some people in our Reformed Church who would say, I don't have a testimony like that. I've always been raised in the church. I didn't, you know, struggle with these sins. I didn't have all this. I wish I had, they would say, a Saul to Paul moment. And you know what he said to them? He said, that is the greatest blessing that God has ever given you. That you didn't have to go through the muck and the mire and the destruction that my life was. And he said that it was his greatest prayer that his children would avoid that same life. You see, you may feel sometimes that the covenant, being born in the church, is oppressive to you. But put it this way. When you were born and baptized into this church, while the rest of this world devalues children, this church loved you and prayed for you before you were even born. We celebrated you. We thanked God for you. And then you were raised in a loving community 
that didn't seek your harm but sought your welfare. You grew up reading the law of God. You knew what was right and wrong. And when you lost your way, the church loves you enough to go find you and to try to bring you back to Christ. Paul says this is one of the greatest blessings you can ever have. And he knows that the Jewish people weren't perfect. And we know that the church isn't perfect. And so we come to the greatest blessing of the covenant. We already heard it this morning. That the law shows us our sin so that we can fall on our knees and say to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The greatest blessing of the covenant is that in this place is the promise of deliverance. God promises salvation to His church. The covenant isn't made up of perfect people, but of sinners who have received the promise of grace and trusted in Christ. That's the whole point of the covenant. God with you in Christ. And if I can again speak to our young friends here. I don't know where I'd be without the covenant. If I wasn't born and raised in Christ, I don't think I'd know Him. It was His mercy to me and His mercy to you to place you here. So the covenant blessings are actually meant to lead us to Christ. We see that, as I mentioned, one of the most important verses is verse 4 of Romans chapter 2. That God's kindness in giving you the covenant is meant to lead you to repentance. Think about this incredible gift that you've been given. The right way, what is the right way to show thanks when you're given an incredible gift? Not with boasting, not thinking we deserve it, but humility and thankfulness. So Paul moves on though and he says, What did the Jews do with the covenant blessings? Verses 21 and 22. Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that, you, that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? He's saying, very simply, you're not practicing what you're preaching. You're not coming with a heart of humility and thankfulness. Instead, you are exalting yourself. Congregation, let this be a lesson for us. May we never boast in the purity of our doctrine that is not accompanied by holy living. It's not enough just to know the Word. We're called to live the Word. And remember that unbelievers draw conclusions about the character of God not by what we believe, but how we live for the Lord. So Paul isn't saying here that every Jew literally stole, or that every Jew literally committed adultery, or robbed temples, but he's taking the same approach that Jesus did with the Ten Commandments. 
Remember, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, if you lust after a woman, it's as if you've committed adultery in your heart. If you hate your brother, it's as if you've committed murder in your heart. Paul is using that same principle. True religion is ultimately a matter of the heart. And the Bible is teaching us, He is teaching us, that the blessings of the covenant, don't miss this, are of no value without a heart of obedience. May I give you an example of this? Do you remember King Saul in the Old Testament? Saul was handsome and strong. And he's told by God to go to the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. And God tells him, do not spare any of the Amalekites. Man, woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, devote them all to destruction. But does Saul do it? No, he, it says he spares King Agag and he takes the choicest of the animals so that he can offer them to God in sacrifice. Seems noble. Seems religious. But when Saul, when Samuel comes to Saul, he says that the Lord has rejected him as king. And Saul begins to plead with Samuel, please don't take the kingdom from me. He says, I'm blameless. I haven't done anything wrong. But you know what he never says? I'm sorry. He never says, I sinned. And so Samuel responds to his pleading and says, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen better than the fat of rams. What is the point of religion without a heart touched by the Gospel? What is the point of sacrifices without a heart of humility and love for God? Samuel says, nothing! All it leads to is hypocrisy. And so then the next chapter... 1 Samuel 15, moving to chapter 16, we read those famous words, man is the one who looks at the outward appearance, but it's God who looks at the heart. And what God highly esteems is humble hearts who trust in Him. Paul makes a really important point in verse 24. Look there with me, if you will. Romans 2, verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know what he's saying here? The, even the Gentiles see through your hypocrisy. When you pretend to be religious, but it's not in your heart, even unbelievers can see through it. And if, God, if the Gentiles can see through it, how much more so can the Lord? It's God who sees into the hearts of men and He will resist the proud. But He will give grace 
to the humble. The whole Bible teaches us that God is not looking at the posture of our bodies. He is not looking at how much money we can give in the offering. He's not even looking if we have memorized the entirety of the Heidelberg Catechism. And I love the Catechism. Are you a Christian on the inside? You know, in our next point, Paul is going to say something very radical to the Jews. So may I say something very radical to the Christians this morning. True religion is not going to church twice on Sunday. Even though you should. True religion is not giving a tithe. True religion is not being reformed and having the right view of election. Not that these things are bad. Paul says they are good. But God is looking for faith in the inward parts of man. It's not about a check-the-box religion. How is your heart before God this morning? And so the Apostle Paul, we see moves on from talking about the blessings of the covenant and having the law to talking about the second thing that the Jews may have been wondering about, which would have been the subject of circumcision. So we see our second point this morning is sincerity required. Remember, we need to be in the sandals of the Jews this morning. As this letter is being read, Paul has shown us that Jews are also sinners. It's wrong to trust in our religion for our right standing before God. But if you're a Jewish person sitting there, there's one more thing nagging at the back of your mind. The sign of circumcision. Given all the way back in Genesis 17, it was a sign that the Jews were not like other people. They were the privileged, chosen people of God with Abraham. It was a sacrament. An Old Testament sacrament. A physical sign given to illustrate a spiritual reality. And you say, well, what is it supposed to illustrate? Look at verse 4 again. It is meant to lead you to repentance. Humility. Thankfulness. Trust in God. But we're told that the Jews became proud of circumcision. So much so, Douglas Moo, who wrote a fantastic commentary in the book of Romans, he points out that in later Judaism, they actually taught, this is a quote, that no person who is circumcised will go to hell. That's how proud they were. But don't miss how radical Paul is here in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. He is flipping the whole idea of circumcision on its head. You don't get a pass in standing before God because you're a Jew or because you're circumcised. 
He says, no, if you've broken the law, you might as well not even have been circumcised. Having an outward sign applied to you is useless if it doesn't touch your heart. We may struggle to understand this because we are Gentile people here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But this is really the nail in the coffin for the Jewish pride. Paul is saying, if you have broken the law a single time, you have no privileged status before the Lord. And no Jew would have said, I'm faultless. Just like us today. Is there any among us who hasn't broken God's law? So Paul says, if you have fallen short, you will be judged just like everyone else. Verse 27, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. You who have written the code in circumcision but break the law. Put very simply, if you have received the sacrament of circumcision, but you have broken the law, welcome to the club. You are unrighteous just like the rest of us. But look what he says in verses 25 and 26. There is a person who doesn't need to fear judgment. But it's not the person who has the covenant blessings or circumcision. The person who does not need to fear God in the judgment, verse 25, is someone who obeys the law. It's not by circumcision that someone is saved, but Paul says it's by obedience someone is saved. Verse 26, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Paul is saying, in theory, which we know already is just theory, if there was an uncircumcised Gentile who never knew the law, but never sinned, he says that is the person who can boast in their righteousness before God. But we come to a sticky wicket this morning. At the end of Romans 2, is there a Gentile who has never sinned? Is there a Jew who has never sinned? What's the answer? All have fallen short of the glory of God. What we need, says Paul, is a spiritual circumcision. Verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It's not our physical condition that we need to amend. It's our spiritual condition. And Paul is hammering this point. The possession of the sign means nothing if you don't have the thing it points towards. A wedding band is just a ring without a spouse. A sign towards Grand Rapids is just a piece of metal without Grand Rapids. And so on. 
The question now is, what does circumcision point to? You know, circumcision was a sign given all the way back in Genesis of God's covenant. But it was a sign actually of the covenant penalty of God. Back in the day when you wanted to make a contract with somebody, you wouldn't sign your name on a piece of paper. You would demonstrate your fidelity, your faithfulness to the contract with a sign. For example, if you, you and I made a contract, we might pick up some dust from the earth and say, if I don't fulfill my end of this, may I, may I be like dust. Remember in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham and we're told that a torch passes through the two halves of the animal. Well, God is saying, may I be like this animal if I do not fulfill my end of this covenant. Circumcision, likewise, is a sign of penalty. We don't want to think about this too long, but in circumcision there is a cutting off of a very intimate, personal part of the human being. And in circumcision, it is as if God said to Abraham, this is what will happen to you if you break the covenant from me. If you break the covenant, you will be cut off from others. If you break the covenant, you will be cut off from life. You will be cut off from me. You will be really and truly circumcised if you break my covenant. But we all have. Jew and Gentile alike. So its spiritual reality needs to point us farther than just our sins. And I think the Belgic Confession puts it well in Article 25 talking about the ceremonies and symbols of the law, it says, yet the truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ in whom they have been fulfilled. Circumcision points to Jesus Christ. It was a physical sign given to the Jews to point them to Jesus and His being circumcised. That in His death, He was truly cut off. Forsaken by the Father. Cut off from the land of the living. Bearing the covenant curse. Truly circumcised. And no outward rite can bring us into fellowship with God. Only His being cut off for me brings me into fellowship with God. Now, spiritual circumcision is actually not a new concept. It's spoken of all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. God says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. 
But how do we get spiritually circumcised? I'd like to invite you, before we conclude this morning, to flip back in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. To Acts chapter 2. Where the Holy Spirit is poured out and Peter is standing before men of every tribe and nation and tongue and he preaches the word and we read in verse, beginning in verse 37, verse 36, excuse me. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the conclusion of his sermon. Jesus is the prophet foretold of who would come and lay his life down for others. And then these men, when they're listening, verse 37, when they heard this, what does it say? They were cut to the heart. They were spiritually circumcised in the preaching and the teaching of Jesus Christ. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And look at this. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How does somebody become circumcised of heart? When we humbly and sincerely hear of Christ, we look to Him and His cross, and we trust in His circumcision. We trust in His being cut off, His thrown away, His forsakenness. Sincerity is what is required. You know, for many of us, as we hear sermons such as these, what comes to our mind is people whom we know and love who have been baptized, catechized, professed faith in the church, and then have not, they have walked away, left the church. But look at what we're told in Acts 2. We cannot force someone to be spiritually circumcised. We cannot force people to have a religion of the heart. It is God who changes the heart. I encourage you, my brothers and sisters, especially those who are mourning the spiritual death of friends and family, pray to God that He would change the hearts of the people who are not here. Be like that widow in Luke 18 who keeps coming to the unrighteous judge. Hear my prayer. Hear my prayer. Hear my prayer. Go every day to God and pray that He would circumcise the hearts of your friends, your family, and your children. And I'd like to invite, I know I've spoken a bit to the young people, before we conclude, I would like to invite you to turn with me to Colossians 2. Especially those of you baptized into the church, maturing in Christ, learning the ways of Christ. We will see in Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12, the Apostle says this, in Him, Colossians 2, 11, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ 
But Paul doesn't end there. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through, the, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Young children, just like the Israelites, were part of the covenant, part of the people of God. They were promised deliverance, but they needed to have that faith in their hearts. Paul says it's the same for those who have been baptized today. My young friends, it is not enough just to be baptized. It is not enough just to know the catechism. That is the religion. The external. But the promises that were given to you right here, that I will be your God, you must believe and trust. Ask God to forgive your sins. To believe upon Christ. And God says when He sees that in your heart, that is the sacrifice that is pleasing to Him. As we said, when we sang, not haughty is my heart, ye people of the Lord, in Him alone confide from this time forth and forevermore. May His wisdom be your guide. Congregation, do not have a haughty heart, but humble yourselves before the Lord and trust in Him. That is the sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we give You thanks for Your Word. That You, that our religion, I should say, is not dependent upon the working of our hands for none of us could earn our way to heaven. The true religion is not about doing the right thing or saying the right thing. Oh, we give You thanks. But Lord, just that simple trusting in Jesus is all You desire. And so Lord, we pray that You would work in our hearts that true and broken and contrite heart. And that Lord, we would not trust in ourselves, but we would trust wholly and entirely in You. We pray, Lord, that You would do these things in our hearts by the work of Your Spirit. For those of us, maybe those who have been raised in the covenant all the days of their life and have maybe even resented it, who have desired something else, maybe those who have even walked away from the covenant promises, we pray, merciful God, that You would be pleased to work in their hearts a thankfulness and a love for You. Not by any work of our hands or even our prayers, but by Your Spirit alone we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.